Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gabia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello. So this week we're discussing the critically acclaimed new drama, I May Destroy You, starring, written, and co-directed by Michaela Cole. Cole stars as Arabella, a young writer who is drugged and raped at a bar while working on a book deadline. This show also stars Waruke Opia as Arabella's friend Terry and Papa Esidu as their friend Kwame. So obviously, um, lots of content warnings for this show, uh, which is primarily about sexual assault and rape, which we will also be discussing on this episode. So if that's material that is triggering to you, you should perhaps uh, skip this one and listen to one of our other episodes. The show doesn't show that stuff so much, but it talks about it constantly. Um, and there are a couple of scenes of graphic violence. So I mean, this is like the most know, upsetting aware. show <laughs> I've ever seen. Like the, the backstory for this episode is that Morgan has been watching this the correct way, which is one episode per week. And I've watched five episodes in the space of, I think, just over a week. And I could not I could not make myself watch anymore. I was like forcing myself to watch it because I was like, this is too much. It's too intense. It is absolutely, without a doubt, the best TV show I've seen all year, but it is also so intense. I was having like physical stress responses. So <laughs> let's <laughs> just, just to give you an idea of, even though it doesn't technically show anything, it's just incredibly like well-crafted, which we will be discussing at length. Yes. I found this less stressful than you did, I think. For context for listeners, I've never experienced anything like the character does in the show. So, you know, I certainly wasn't triggered by anything. But I think when I watch something that's really upsetting, but it, but that's really, really good, I often have a sort of euphoric reaction in the sense that I'm just like, this is such amazing art. And that that kind of counterbalances the sense of being like, oh my god, this is really upsetting. And I definitely was emotionally affected by this in the sense that it was difficult to watch and I would not have wanted to binge it, but it was such an incredible work of art and still is. I haven't finished it yet because it's not finished yet in America. That, that again, sort of offset the sense of me being like, this is really excruciating. Whereas I think you had more of a response that was just like, this is really, really <laughs> difficult to watch. Yeah. Um, which, you know, different strokes, etc. And it's also funny is the thing, which is the one of the things yeah. that I just constantly come back to as a TV critic, like the sheer volume of shows that either are very serious or are attempting to be very serious and therefore don't have any jokes. And like all great writers, she has loads of jokes and loads of often like gallows humour in this show. And I mean, it's very much not a comedy, even though it's 28 minute episodes, but um you know, she knows how to make it humorous. And obviously, like, the show that she was previously more and most famous for was a sitcom. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I was just having a conversation with another friend about the great sort of golden age of TV dramas in America, you know, Bad Ben, The Sopranos, The Wire, etc. She's watching The Sopranos at the moment, which I've never seen. And she was like, it's really, really funny. Like, The Sopranos is really funny. And I was like, yes, all of those great dramas are really funny because that's how you get people to watch them, right? Like, and I wouldn't describe this as, like, super funny, but it definitely has humor in it, for yeah. sure. It has a sense of humor and it has, like, a really good sense of just timing. Like there's loads of really interesting editorial choices and also uh, like Michaela Cole's acting. She really kind of turns on a dime all the time, which I think is like a really interesting depiction of trauma. Cause like it's this character who for, you know, the first section is kind of in denial and then is trying to deal with this experience in very, various different ways and putting on very different faces for different people in her life. But there's also moments where like, she thinks that she's being really cheerful and upbeat, but because we're viewers, we can see how many different like feelings are kind of flickering over her face and like the really extreme reactions she has to certain things. And sometimes that's like, it works like a punchline, but it's kind of like a horror punchline, which is something people talk a lot about with Jordan Peele, who's obviously like the most famous filmmaker who kind of mixes comedy timing and horror in like a really disturbing way. Yes. And she is just such a great actress, which... Most writers are not, because most writers aren't she acting is in their a stuff. True, a true triple threat. Yeah, big time. We should give some background on her. There was an amazing profile of her in Vulture at 
sort of when the show was first airing. Uh, yeah, like honestly, ago. even if you're listening to this without watching the show, which I'm sure some people will be, just read the profile. Like the profile is really good. Yeah, well, I'm going to give a couple details from it. It was written by E. Alex Jung, who is like the star of Vulture at the moment. He writes so much great stuff for them. And it's it's just a great read. So we'll be linking to that, obviously, in the show notes, so you can find it via Google. But um, her basic sort of background is that her parents immigrated from Ghana, and she grew up in London in sort of estate housing. And first began studying at university at the University of Birmingham, and then became really involved in uh, Pentecostalism in quite an extreme way and dropped out of university to sort of be involved in that, which informed uh, her first show, Chewing Gum, which is about a young woman who had been very religious and wants to start having sex. I have not seen that. It was one of those things I'd always kind of meant to see and then hadn't gotten around to it. And then Netflix pulled it right before this show started airing in a move that has to have been just spite. And she sort of got out of that scene and then wound up transferring to the Guildhall School of Music and Drama, which is a big drama school in um, England for those listening who are not familiar. And there's a lot in this profile about the sort of racism that she encountered there, which sounds quite harrowing. Uh, she had a student blog for a while called the Drama School Diaries, which I was just like, we are the same age. Like, <laughs> yes, I was indeed. like, this is but yeah, she's like 32. And I was like, this is all like, it's really wild to kind of realize that a genuine genius is one of your peers. And obviously, yeah. even at that point, even though she had clearly like a lot of haters at school, including among the teachers, even if you're like good enough to get into Guildhall and like doing one woman shows and stuff, you're good. Right. So she met Papa Asidu there, who is one of the stars of this show, and also wrote what would become the one-woman show Chewing Gum Dreams, which then she turned into Chewing Gum, which was the TV show I was just referencing. And it sounds like the set of that show was also pretty nightmarish. There's a lot of detail in the profile that we won't go into because we're not talking about that show today. Um, but again, we really recommend reading that. Yeah. I mean, essentially, it's like the show is her, and that really was her breakout thing in the UK, and then it got this following in the US that I'm, like, less aware of, but it was obviously really successful. Like, she was a face, who a really recognisable face, because, like, she was someone who was fronting her own TV show, and also there was, like, a lot of attention going to be paid to a black woman who's her showrunner. And then it turns out, like, from this profile, she's very candid about how little power she was be being given behind the scenes. And, like, the director of her own show, who she was naming in the piece, was being racist on set. And she just had these really difficult kind of experiences making this show, which became super popular. Um, so, like, when it came to the time to make I May Destroy You, she had, like, this really intense personal motivation to make sure she still had creative control. Unfortunately all these kind of networks and streaming services were kind of fighting over her a little bit and they recognised how good the show was. So she did she did manage to get it. Although, I don't want to get too inside baseball here because there's so much about like packaging and whatnot that we don't need to discuss. But um, the way that sort of agencies and networks work to put together TV shows is pretty slimy, which has been the cause of the big break between the Writers Guild and the unions for the past year or so. And I do want to read one quote from this profile that is really just damning. Uh, so he writes, when she first began pitching the concept for I May Destroy You in spring 2017, Netflix offered her 1 million upfront, 1 million. But when she learned they wouldn't allow her to retain any percentage of the copyright, she said, no, no amount was worth that. She fired CAA, her agency in the U.S. too, when it tried to push her to take the deal after she learned it would be making an undisclosed amount on the back end. Cole recalls one clarifying moment when she spoke with a senior-level development executive at Netflix and asked if she could retain at least 5% of her rights. There was just silence on the phone, she says. And she said, it's not how we do things here. Nobody does that. It's not a big deal. I said, if it's not a big deal, then I'd really like to have 5% of my rights. Silence. She bargained down to 2%, 1%, and finally 0.5%. The woman said she'd have to run it up the chain. Then she paused and said, Michaela, I just want you to know I'm really proud of you. You're doing the right thing. And she hung up. Ugh. Grim. So it went to HBO and BBC instead. Yeah. At some point, some kind of expose will be written about Netflix. 
but Netflix's PR currently and their power over Hollywood is so complete, we will not go any further. <laughs> yeah. But I just thought that was worth reading because you never hear showrunners, creators of things, directors, whatever, talk about the business of Hollywood in such a frank way. And yeah, and it's also like very much because the way you get to that point, especially in the US, is, you know, you, you work the system, you are to some extent, you've got to be an insider, you've got to have all these connections. And for like a whole variety of reasons, she is not an insider at all. And that in some way gives you like the power to speak out. Yes. And the project is so good, obviously, but also personal to her. It's based on her own experiences that the idea of wanting to own some of the copyrights seems pretty reasonable. And obviously that's not how things are done. And, you know, you hear lots of stories about Netflix really taking over projects from people. And obviously that happens in other places too. And the beauty of this show is that obviously it's a collaboration between all the various people who worked on it, but it really does feel like this person's vision of the world. And the idea that you wouldn't want to encourage that is just really depressing to me. But fortunately she recognized that she needed to do in her own way and uh, did that. So we have the show as it exists currently, which is great and has been a huge hit. Also, the thing is that at the moment, there's obviously like kind of always a certain volume of shows and movies that are about sexism or sexual assault. And at the moment, there's more because of the Me Too movement. And there's loads of stuff that's sort of being labelled as timely. And the vast majority of it isn't. And this very much is. Because as well as it obviously being about rape and recovery, it's also about kind of the characters just re-examining their whole worldview of like what consent is, which is what this whole kind of conversation has also largely been. Because it's like the only piece of media I've seen that really kind of examines, I guess, like the kind of personal and collective experience of everyone kind of looking back through their lives and like dredging up old memories and being like, oh shit, that was bad, wasn't it? And that is basically the premise of like, at least the five episodes which I managed to get through. <laughs> yes, there's a lot of that. Did you get to the one where they're in high school? No, that was the next one. Yeah, it's so good. The show is 12 episodes long. I've seen 10 of them. And part of what's so good about it is that it is that long. I don't think every episode is as good as all the others. They're they're all really good, but some of them are a bit better. But I think the fact that it is 12 episodes as opposed to, say, six, which is a more common number for a UK show, allows her to be quite digressive in her storytelling approach. And when I first you know, heard about the show and saw that it was 12 episodes, I was like, wow, that's pretty long because we've just trained ourselves now to expect television to be presented in quite short packages. And the whole point of what she's doing is not trying to tell like a compact focused narrative. It's to go into all these other kind of places within the story and to focus one episode on one of the friends or to do this episode that's a flashback to when they were in high school, which was completely surreal to me because it was like a forensic recreation of a British secondary school from like when we were that age and I went on exchange trips and I was just like oh my god like I'm I've been transported back in time but all of that stuff sort of adds up together to what she's really trying to do which is not to tell exactly just like a linear story in a traditional sense but to make this bigger point about consent and memory and the way that we process these things because obviously you know Arabella is raped in the first episode and she's incredibly traumatized by this and her her initial reaction is to be in denial about it which is understandable but after that she kind of goes in the other direction which is to see everything in a very black and white way which is also understandable but the way the show kind of seems to be coming down again, not having seen the last two episodes, is not to, like, exonerate rapists, obviously, but to instead kind of just say, like, all of this stuff is kind of in a gray area, and obviously, like, dragging someone at a bar and raping them is not acceptable, but there's all this other kind of behavior that everybody 
does that can be sort of violating someone or making someone feel uncomfortable. I mean, Arabella herself does stuff that you watch and you're like, oh, that's that's not good. Like, that's really making me uncomfortable. And she's forced to kind of re-examine the way she's thought about all of this. And you don't get that without the big scope of the show, which even though it's taking place in these people's sort of normal contemporary lives, feels really ambitious and kind of epic to me. Yeah, it's really philosophical and incredibly realistic in a way that is very rare because instead of having like a kind of I mean it has a traditional kind of A plot B plot structure in a sense that each car- each kind of episode is focusing on one or two of the characters like Arabella and one of her friends but even from the first episode you can tell the structure is going to be so unusual because it starts off with like her life is already really fleshed out from the start so like she's got this kind of on again, off again, ambiguous relationship with this mediocre guy she met on holiday in Italy. And then she's got this like writing deadline. And for like most of the first episode, I was just like stressing the fuck out about this writing deadline. Cause I was like, oh, you're not, you're not, you're not like treating this deadline well. You're dealing with it badly in a very recognizable way that I fully understand. So it was like agony to watch that. And then of course, like right towards the end of the first episode, she is raped, but like she doesn't, we don't see this because she doesn't see this because she's been drugged and she only has like this tiny flash of a flashback at the very end of the first episode and her reaction is like oh huh something weird's happened and then it's like episode two is where she actually fully starts to realize what's happened but what I like really appreciated about just that kind of foundational point in the first two episodes is that it's not just like oh we need to flesh out this character so we have like so you sympathize with someone who's experiencing something bad it was depicting like oh, her life's already full up, right? Like, if something traumatic happens to you, everyone is always, like, at the point where you're like, I'm busy. Like, I don't have time for this. (laughs) And the show is really, it just does this really great job of being like, oh, she's fucking busy. Like, she doesn't have time to add, like, deal with trauma to the schedule. And that's kind of the point where, like, the dominoes start tipping over and everything becomes, like, really chaotic because, you know, as well as having this deadline which already existed, which is gonna make things so much harder to navigate because like does she tell her co-workers does she tell her bosses why she's late and also the fact that now writing is going to be like inextricably linked with the rape because she was on a deadline trying to write when it happened so like that's re-traumatizing her and then also she's got like her boyfriend and like her friends and you know her parents haven't even shown up at the point where I'm watching it but I'm sure some kind of family members will show up later and then also there's the police so like she has to start going to the police and then that kind of snowballs into like oh she has to find some way to tell her italian semi-boyfriend so they can get like dna from him so there's like so much extra like work on top of just dealing psychologically with the whole issue that you've now like stepped into and then also there's like the everyday stuff and all of her friends also have their own drama and their own problems that she's maybe or maybe not gonna have to deal with yeah, it's just really like complex material to put into like an episode that's less than half an hour and then also have really interesting material for all of the supporting characters. Well, I think one of the things about the show that's so incredible is that all of the characters are really sympathetic figures, but they're also all kind of a mess in a different way. They're all quite annoying. Like, yes, <laughs> they're all quite annoying people. <laughs> right. They're not sort of idealized figures at all. And I wasn't watching actively feeling like, oh, man, I wish these were my friends. I wasn't like, not like I wouldn't like them exactly, but that just wasn't the way my brain was processing it. Right. Like, I feel like sometimes with shows about younger people, there's an effort to be like, they're so cool. Right? Because there's this feeling like you have to want to really like them. And that, again, like her, so she has this best friend, Terry, who I really love and think is a really great character. But like, I would not want to be friends with that person. Like, she seems kind of a lot of work. But that's kind of the point of what the show is doing, right? Like, it's not attempting to make you want to like 
hang out with these people. It's more trying to be like, everyone is just really complicated and has a lot of shit going on. So, like, Terry is an actress. She's a struggling actress. She's not getting a lot of auditions. Like, she's going on auditions and not getting jobs. And so she has a kind of actress quality where she kind of has to make things about her a lot. (laughs) But she clearly loves Arabella in a, like, deep and profound way. And she really, really wants to take care of her. On the other hand, like, taking care of someone or, like, being there for someone who has been raped, there's not a great guidebook for that. Like, it's... We've only recently, in, like, the grand scheme of the history of culture, really even been talking about this in an open way. And it's just a difficult thing. And Terry kind of wants there to be, like, rules. And she wants to be able to, like, follow them. And she's obsessed with self-care. She wants to be able to, like, do self-care, and then Arabella will be better, and it will be fine. And that's not how it works. And it's clearly well-meaning, but, it like, it's just not really going to work that way. And it's such a great relationship, because, again, these people obviously love each other, but this whole situation is just really fucked up. And so there's this sort of complicated way that they're sort of engaging with each other. And I find them both, again, like really compelling and sympathetic and lovable, but not in a way where like, not necessarily likable, if that makes sense. And I think that that is just really good writing, because I think sometimes things get bogged down, especially things about younger people in being like, they have to be likable and hip. Like, I don't give a shit about that. Well, the thing is, right, that um, the other day we were talking about like the, the response to this in the UK and the fact that this is like a uniquely realistic show in terms of its depiction of just like millennials in London and London in general, because London has this massively outsized place in British pop culture and politics and news media and everything. But in terms of like contemporary dramas, the depictions of London are just like completely out the window nonsense. Like it's, it is literally as if every single TV show set in New York was just like friends and sex in the city. Like it's completely out of touch with just race and class. For Americans, London is like more expensive to live in than New York. Like pretty much everyone of our generation, unless you are, you know, a doctor or a lawyer or something, you will be living in like a moldy flat share, like a tiny flat with a bunch of people who you may or may not be friends with into your mid-30s. I lived there for several years myself in my early 20s when it was like that was like a more acceptable living conditions when you're like 22. And I live with people now who like left London basically partly for that reason because it's like it's just untenable. And the situation has only got worse. Like whenever I go back to London to visit friends or whatever, the kind of economic inequality is just so blatant because the centre of the city is this like glitzy, expensive tourist place. And then there's just miles and miles and miles and miles of just like broken down city everywhere else and it's an amazing place to live but it's also a horrible place to live and this show has like characters who are they would be seen as really cool young people who have cool media jobs and you know the protagonist is this person who is twitter famous like she already wrote one thing and i think this is like her second big writing project and like she is living in a flat share with a guy who's like in his mid-30s and has like graying hair which is pretty much normal for like anyone in that position and it's like a lot of like really realistic depictions of life that you just don't see and also the fact that it's a majority black cast is extremely unusual in the UK like the British TV and film industry is racist in like a different way from America but also purely because of the size of the country like in the US there are black owned corners of media where there's like black movies and TV shows and stuff and in the UK there isn't really that because there's only like a few channels Um, And a lot of stuff is kind of the BBC where there are kind of diversity quotas and pushes for more people of colour to have creative roles. But the pipeline just simply doesn't exist. We'll link to some articles in the show notes about that. But also people of colour are often kind of in supporting roles. And the idea of having a show which is like mostly black people, which is about real life and is not about like knife crime or something, (laughs) is, is very unusual. Um, and it was really interesting to watch this and see so many like amazing black actors who are clearly not getting their due on TV. Papa Esiedu is clearly successful, like as a stage actor, he has like a real presence. But this is someone who like I could vaguely recognize his face, but he is not like a well-known TV actor. So yeah, it's like very different from the American TV industry, and this is also like a uniquely 
thoughtful and smart kind of depiction of life in London. Yeah, I mean, you get you hear so many interviews with Black British actors who've come to America to work, and will say, like, well, I could never have had this career in the UK, because it's just a nightmare. And I'm like, but America is a nightmare! Like, it's, it's like, so it's dark! Like, oh, well, it's also, like, that thing I wrote, like, a couple months ago about, like, historical dramas, because historical dramas are such a crucial part of British media. Yeah. And, like, with very few exceptions, they will have white people in virtually every single role, if not every single role. So, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think, like, obviously we're two white people talking about this, but I think... What's sort of so incredible about this show is that obviously race is like central to the story and it's discussed frequently. There are a few white characters, no central characters, kind of one exception. And it's typically race comes up as it would when one of the sort of main black characters has an interaction with a white person. It's just like, "Mm, that was not great. But for the most part, in terms of just like screen time minutes, it's all black actors interacting with each other. And so that's not something that's getting talked about as much, but it's obviously still like central to what is happening in the show. And because it's based on her life, you have this sort of like element of the African immigrant experience. That's a component of the show. And like, you do see her family later on and it's just, sort of presented in this way it's very straightforward and matter of fact because this is her life experience and so that's the story that she's telling and there just isn't anything else like this in British television that I've seen certainly and I think that a part of the success in America is the novelty factor not in a gross way but just in a like there is an anglophile element to the way that we consume culture here right and this is a part of british culture that never gets depicted because of the racism of the tv and film industry and it's really really refreshing to be like oh right there are other people and you can tell their stories as well and again the like lack of pandering to a theoretical white audience i think is one of the show's great strengths like she's not explaining anything you might not get a reference, but like meaning you as in the collective you and I, right? But she doesn't give a shit. And that's part of what makes it good art is that like, it doesn't matter if you're not getting all the specifics because it feels so real and lived in. I mean, I think her, her like obvious skills as a comedy writer and director really come through in the minor characters because all of the minor characters are really hilariously well observed. She has these publishers who they're just so embarrassing. <laughs> they're just, and they're so real. They're so cringy, like just unbearable. So there is like, there's like these two white people who are like her immediate bosses who she's sort of interacting with the most. And they are such a kind of familiar sort of type of middle-class Gen X Londoners, right? And they've got this kind of trendy office somewhere. And then their boss is this quite posh black woman who is just this absolute like lovey and she is also like really cringy and so like the first and but like the first time Arbel meets her she's like so excited because this woman's black and it's like this woman is awful <laughs> like she's just she's like so kind of she's such a publisher she's like such a publisher in a bad way <laughs> I fucking loved her I mean she, she was, was awful great. but that she was great was like hysterical <laughs> but she also was like I mean, there's a great scene, I don't know if you've seen it yet, I can't remember what episode, where Arabella is, has run out of money because she's supposed to have hit this deadline and that's what she gets paid and she obviously has not hit it. And she goes and sees this woman because she wants to get an advance of her advance, which is not how publishing works. And God's like, sweet. No. And the woman is like, oh, you haven't gotten paid. And she's like, no, no, I got the first check, but like, I want more of a... Like, I want the second one. And she's just like, oh, well, you've signed a contract and, like, that's not going to work. But she delivers it in this sort of, like, sing-songy way where, like, she's right, right? Like, they should not be paying out she's, more of the money to this woman. she's also, like, like patronized, patronizing. Oh, my God. Just, like, ugh. It's both hilarious. I mean, I was simultaneously, like, this is hilarious and also, like, rude and patronizing, but also... Like, this request is not going to work. 
Like, if you were a publisher and were just like, yes, of course, we'll pay you out all of your advance money without you giving us the book, like, that would not be a viable business option. But the whole thing, I was like, oh, God, this is so just, oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every single supporting character has that level of, like, yeah. oh, this feels like a real human. <laughs> because it's fresh in my mind I've only just like watched episode five but it's like by that point they've introduced this guy they've hired in as a ghost writer who like she kind of ends up dating and that's like another one of the subplots that sort of examining consent because this guy also is like a shit heel and then there's this other younger woman who's like a junior publishing employee this like white girl but like their accents they've both got these like really posh accents and one of them's gone to Cambridge and like their whole vibe and I'm like how the fuck <laughs> like did you did you like as a director and as like a casting person find such like a deep pool of talent who are able to perfectly skewer like these awful people who are so familiar in british life in london life specifically um and i think it must just be one of those situations where like it's partly because the experience working on this show must have been really fruitful. Like she's a really good writer and director and knows what she wants, but also most TV shows are just really bad and are underutilizing their actors. Yes. So, cause like, you know, there's just all these, it's full of just like randos, you know? And they're all so good that it's like, oh, okay, you could be this good in everything. Yeah. Well, we should talk about that episode, which I think is one of the most interesting in the show. So she's met this guy, Zane, who is the consultant for this publishing company. He's also a writer. He writes for them. And they wind up hooking up, and he slips the condom off in the midst of this encounter. Yeah. And at first, she doesn't think much of it. She's kind of annoyed. She has to get the morning after pill, but she doesn't sort of process it as a serious violation. And she then is listening to a podcast and the hosts are talking about this as like a thing that men do, right? And she kind of realizes that like this was actually really horrible. And at this event where um, some writers from this agency or publishing company or whatever are meant to be reading to a sort of select group of industry insiders, uh, she has a conversation with this white woman who you were just mentioning who kind of alludes to the fact that this is a pattern for this guy. And she winds up, instead of reading out her piece, like outing him in front of this group of people as a rapist, and everyone like loses their minds. And then they, this sort of group of young women go off to a bar and are all like staring at Twitter as like the internet explodes. And this was the moment for me where I was like, oh, this show is like about bigger stuff than just this one incident. I don't think I've seen or read anything that is so directly about like our current cultural moment regarding, you know, sexual assault that feels like it's actually depicting sort of what we're living in in the past few years. Well, it's because everything is like, every, every story is like focusing so specifically on like a single event. Whereas, like I said earlier, this like is philosophical. Yes. And the feeling, so she gets this like rush from doing this and then has to like Skype the Italian guy to tell him that the police have to, he has to go to the police station to give his sperm to check the DNA against the um, her clothes from the night of the assault. And he like freaks out and tells, she's avoided telling him that this happened. And she freaks out and says that it was her fault. Basically, she should have been more careful. And she breaks down crying. And I was just thinking about like when the, the sort of few months after the Weinstein stories dropped and there was this like rush of like every day there would be a new big article in some newspaper about like the next horrible man. I certainly felt like a weird adrenaline rush reading all that stuff and being like, who's the next one, right? When like a public figure does something really shocking, like the equivalent of going out on stage and like naming someone as a rapist, it is like weirdly exciting. And it's kind of like, oh, someone's making a difference here and like something dramatic is happening. And there's also kind of this slight like prurient celebrity interest, but it's also like, oh, the world is changing and like you kind of feel like you're participating because it's the conversation everyone has been having. 
But in reality, it's just like everything is still extremely fucked up. So. Right. And the show so effectively captures that sense of like brief euphoria at the ability to do something. And like, obviously, what this guy does to her with the condom is gross and unacceptable. And this guy is a shit. And it's obviously like, if there's a pattern of doing this, you find out, right? But she's upset at the combination of the two events, the rape at the bar and this guy. But you get the sense, or I got the sense anyway, that she's sort of going after this guy because she can't do anything about the rape at the bar, right? But she knows who he is. So she'll name him in this very, very public way. But it doesn't fix the problem, right? Like, it's this sort of brief panacea. And she goes home and the sort of semi-boyfriend says this horrible stuff to her and immediately she sort of bursts out crying and then looks at Twitter to, like, make herself feel better. (laughs) Which the show does a lot with social media to sort of mixed effect, I would say. I think some of it is pretty good and smart and some of it gets a little bit broad she gets very sort of addicted to her phone and becomes kind of a internet celebrity as someone who's like you know speaking truth to power about sexual assault and again i think sometimes it gets a little bit too broad and it kind of just ends abruptly but i did appreciate that they were engaging with those subjects at all because i think most art doesn't know how to deal with the internet period, which is something that we've talked about before, which is hard. Like, it's hard to know how to depict yeah. those things. This show definitely does it well. Like, they're, And also it's like, they're all texting each other as well. That's like a really obvious way in which this is like a good depiction of kind of millennial London, but also something that just you have to overlook in practically every London show is the fact that every single person lives so far away from each other. And like, the only way anyone can meet up with each other at any point is by taking like an hour long train and texting constantly, which they have in this show. And they also have like her friend Kwame is like on Grindr, like constantly, um, which is this sort of like underlying thing that kind of sometimes is a bit funny and other times is pretty dark. Yes, we should talk about him a little bit. He also is assaulted in one of the earlier episodes. I can't remember which exactly after hooking up, this guy, uh, consensually, he, the guy assaults him, and he doesn't say anything about it initially because Arabella has is in the processing her whole experience to her friends, and it's clear that he initially doesn't feel that it's sort of his experiences of the same level of seriousness. Yeah, but then he like accompanies her to the police station, and like there's these two quite nice police officers who these two women who are like helping Arabella through this and are basically like clearly have this conversation like a hundred times a day where they like explain to adult women what consent is and they're like oh shit and then because Kwame's there like he gets the same lecture secondhand and there's just this scene where like Arabella and Terry are having this really like casual like happy conversation outside the police station and he's like standing behind them googling like is this assault (laughs) which is like so great yeah and then he later goes back to the police station and does not get the two nice female detectives, gets a man who's very uncomfortable about this whole thing and, like, doesn't understand how any of this works. And he just leaves and it's sort of a mess. I think the stuff with Kwame is handled with slightly less sort of nuance and dexterity, I would say, than the stuff with Arabella. I mean, what I really liked at the end of that episode is you have this juxtaposition between all the girls like having basically like this bonding moment in the bar because they've managed to out a rapist and then Arabella getting all this kind of public adulation on Twitter for being so open about her experience. And so there's this sense of like sisterhood and Kwame is like completely excluded like on every level because he's like a black gay man who's hooking up with people who are often closeted and also he's getting no help from the law and also he hasn't spoken to this with his female friends. It's almost like, in that regard, slightly unequal relationship because it's it's that sort of like, oh, the gay friend and the party girls vibe, even though they are like genuinely a really great relationship. It's like he doesn't feel like he can open up to that extent. And it's just like really, really tragic to me. Yes, I think this, I think his stuff in the earlier episodes is really great. In the later episodes, it starts to feel a little wobbly to me. Not like terrible or anything at all. Like that's still well written, but they're just, it just felt a little less deep, I think, compared to the stuff with her. Like, there's a lot 
a lot, a lot of grinder stuff, which like this, he's sort of addicted to it. So it makes sense, but it becomes a little bit like, okay, yes. But obviously just having that character in the show expands the sort of view of what it's trying to do in terms of talking about assault and the different kinds of experiences that people have, the different kinds of people who go through this. And I think the police are not a central figure in the show, but I think she deals with it in a pretty smart way. When she first sees these two female cops, like they're basically the dream, right? Yeah, I was like, wow, this is going really well. (laughs) So they completely take her seriously. Like they're very, very sympathetic. They've obviously been assigned to like this duty because they want to be doing this specific thing, right? And watching that first episode, I was like, huh, okay. But then as the show goes on, you kind of are like, oh, this is more complicated than you maybe would think from just that episode. So Kwame has the experience that's way, 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 way less positive than that. And then, you know, spoiler alert, but like, it seems like they've kind of figured it out. And then she goes back to collect her thing, or they call her back later on, like episode nine, maybe, and basically have to say like, yeah, so we have no answers for you and we're closing the case. Here's your stuff. And they're clearly feel really bad about it like these individual people obviously are like well-meaning and want to be doing their job but they have no solutions for her so like what her satisfaction and like self-worth and peace have to come from some other source which i thought was really effective as sort of storytelling because she obviously was not interested in like doing a big television show about the police which is fine like we all have different interests but she kind of manages to subtly get through that, like, this is not going to lead you to gratification, yeah. right? I mean, I have, I'm sure I have at some point watched, like, one episode, but I do not watch, like, Law & Order SVU. But that is, like, obviously the premier form of media about this topic. And conceptually, it's obviously a farce, not just for the copaganda aspects, but just the idea of being able to do like a sex crime show that ties up at the end. Because <laughs> it's like, you can't resolve, like you can't resolve that. And that's also kind of the the key issue with like the vast majority of like rape revenge movies. And obviously, like I don't, like I wouldn't say like that's a bad genre intrinsically. Like most of the time it's bad when it's just like, you know, Quentin Tarantino doing it. But, you know, they're serving a different function. But at the same time, like, this does have the right idea where it's like you cannot follow a traditional arc because if it's, like, a realistic show, like Morgan said, like, the closure is not going to come from law enforcement and it's not going to come from perhaps, like, traditional narrative means. Yes. I mean, the SCU comparison is so interesting because I like so many American teenage girls in the 2000s and I would imagine late 90s I don't remember exactly (laughs) when that started was like obsessed with that television show I watched every rerun on USA when I was 14 universal experience yeah and at the time this stuff was not talked about right like nobody said anything to us about rape or sexual assault or whatever I mean Maybe other people were talking about it, but certainly in my town, like this was just not a subject of conversation. And so to have a show on that even like addressed these things felt like really kind of like scandalous, but in a positive way. And there were certain things that like I learned from that show about like, don't shower if you get raped before you go to the police, right? Like literally they drill that home like every episode. I mean, I'm sure I learned that from like a movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, because who's, like, lecturing you about that? And obviously the fantasy of the things getting resolved is uh, satisfying to women, hence the show being on for, like, 20-plus years. But it's fascinating to sort of look at the evolution of our sort of cultural ways of addressing these things over the past over the past 20 years that that show has been on, right? Because at the time, it felt like Obviously, you knew it was silly, even at the age of 15. Like, they're going through all this, like, ridiculous, like, oh, and then the father was raping his daughter, and then hiding her in a cage. Like, I mean, it was absurd. Like, I mean, just ripped from the headlines nonsense. But it was 
some sort of acknowledgement that something was some that bad things happened. And, you know, I last year talked to a bunch of my mother's female high school students for a project I was doing. And the way that they talked about like rape culture, and like sexual assault and consent, I was like, Oh, my God, like, things have changed. Because I mean, this is like in Massachusetts, you know, whatever. But like, we would never have talked about that stuff when I was 16. I mean, my skill was like, I would say unusually bad at preparing us for life. But yeah, the concept of having a conversation about consent, if that happened, I don't think I was present. <laughs> no. And then you get to college and they had like little workshops and like a fake play about consent. And we were all like, this is a joke. They did not have that in mind. I mean, I guess like in the US where it's like campus based or whatever, they're like, oh yeah, we've got like frats. So they like stick stick a band-aid over like the gaping wound. <laughs> yeah, every... um. <sighs> Every college that, uh, like, around the time we were going to college, and I'm sure they still do this, there would literally be, like, a play that you had to watch put on by some, you know, hired whatever that was like, here's what not to do. Here's what you should do. And everyone was, like, rolling their eyes, like, into the back of their skulls, just like, this is a nightmare. But what I kind of think is the way that stuff gets talked about on college campuses, for instance, is extremely, extremely didactic. And there's a lot of emphasis on, like, Almost like you have to read a little speech before you read to have sex with someone, which is not how people behave, right? Like, that's not realistic. People, like, it just doesn't happen. Which doesn't mean that consent and sexual assault don't happen and aren't complicated. But, like, the way that I think some of the discourse around this stuff has gone is a little bit sort of rigid and unrealistic. And what's so great about this show, to bring it back to what we're actually talking about, is that it fully acknowledges how traumatic this stuff is while also being primarily concerned with like actual human behavior as opposed to this sort of like buzzwords yeah i mean basically like kind of the generation of sort of like you know workplace harassment training and school harassment training is kind of emerging from you know our parents generation witnessing anita hill in the u.s and like being like oh sexual harassment in the workplace like exists and then what this show is coming off of is obviously the weinstein era but like I mean, we're all kind of aware of the conversation that happened around that, but like, if you actually kind of listen to or read the interviews that Ronan Farrow was doing, like his podcast is great, highly recommend it. But like, kind of the crucial thing there is obviously that they were having these really long conversations uh, with people who were assaulted or harassed by Weinstein and others, and like the conversations would be about like, oh, maybe they like did have a consensual relationship, or maybe it wasn't rape and it was just harassment or they interview other people who were like in his surroundings describing like his behavior and the way there was this whole ecosystem to like support him and obviously that's like a different type of person than like the perpetrators in this show but it's kind of like that whole like very public situation with all these celebrities is given everyone kind of the mechanism to have that conversation about the ecosystem they're like witnessing in their own lives And that is kind of everyone going back and having like an archaeological dig through their memories and being like, oh shit, which is what this show is about rather than like having some police investigate something that's like a pretty clear cut crime. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, the fact that she can't remember it. I mean, she remembers little bits, but she obviously can't remember, you know, the full thing means that it becomes, it's a mech, I mean, it's obviously based on something that really happened to her, but it becomes in a storytelling sense, a mechanism to expand it to this much bigger, more philosophical, as you say, inquiry into like the state of the world right now, as opposed to just this one individual woman's trauma. Although it also is about that and is depicted really convincingly and affectingly, both through the writing and her performance, which like we have, we said at the beginning that she's great actors. We haven't, it's hard to talk about acting, I think. I mean, actors are always like, how do you talk about it? And I even think as a critic, like, yeah, there's like a very small handful of film critics who really talk about acting in an yeah. intelligent way. It's very difficult. I'm not very good at it, but you can you can definitely tell she's good. She's just really <laughs> great. And I think the direction, which we haven't talked about so much, which is mostly um, her co-directing with this guy, Sam Miller, who is like a TV director. He's in a lot of stuff in the UK, some in the US. He did a lot of episodes like Luther. So I think he is like credited as the sole director of the first couple episodes. And then they're co-directing after that. Although you can, you know, check on IMDb, but um, they put, it's like, if you watch the credits, it's like written and created by Michaela Cole. And then direction is like the last credit, which is the opposite of what, how it normally works, which I think is kind of interesting, but they do a great job. 
And I think one of the things they do really well, which is sort of in sync with her great performance, is depicting like altered states, be they chemically altered or just like the product of anxiety. So there's a one episode where they, it's a flashback to um, her and Terry, her friend uh, in Italy, which is where she meets the sort of crappy boyfriend. And they're really, really high at this club. Arabella especially is like really, really high. And the way the camera is like close to her face and the performance that she's giving and the way they're cutting just convey the state of mind that she is in really effectively. And they do a similar thing with the way the camera is interacting with her face and the sort of cutting a couple times in later episodes where she's feeling really anxious with, you know, being at a bar and sort of being triggered by, by being at a bar. And then also after the sort of episode with Zane, the guy with the condom, when he comes in to this meeting at the publisher publisher's office and she wasn't expecting him to be there. And she obviously just like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And the look on her face and the way the camera is situated you just get this feeling of. Like, I mean, I was experiencing oh. this show as a horror movie. Like, it was- well, and what I was thinking was like, so I've never been assaulted, but I've definitely had the experience of like being at a dinner or in a meeting or, you know, a group setting with a man or men who give me a bad feeling, right? And like, yeah. Women, other people. Or being, like, surprised by an unwanted yes. appearance. And, like, that sense of being, like, I have to just keep smiling, but, like, this man just, I, I do not like this. I do not like this at all. Like, I'm very uncomfortable. And somehow the way it was directed and the performance that she's giving made me feel that so intensely. And, like, I feel like I've probably read books where that's described because you can do the internal monologue, right? But I can't think of a TV show or a movie that conveys that as specifically as that moment did. And I think, like, that's just one example, but that sort of attention to, like, what it feels like to exist in the world as specifically as a woman, but obviously other people have these experiences too. Like, I was just so impressed by that. So it's visually really effective also, and all the actors are great, but she especially, you're just like, oh man. Yeah. I mean, I think like that that kind of technique that you just described is like such a good example of something that only happens when like the creator absolutely does have control over the project because I can, I'm sure there are many filmmakers, especially women filmmakers, who would be able to articulate that in some way. But then you'd have a conversation where it's like, well, is the audience going to get this? Like, what is this? Is it too weird? But like, as it turns out, that like the show is just full of stuff which is like so recognizable and like in many cases really universal and just in terms of like that meeting where like Zane comes in that was something I was thinking about before I watched the episode because I watched it the day after or something there was some like the latest news story of Louis CK has made like another comeback but like whenever he does these events it's always like a surprise event so he'll do like a surprise five minute set and then there'll be like a photo of him with some other comedians and I was just like this is like such a familiar, like unpleasant thing that is going to happen in like every single industry in the world where like there are people who have now been outed as sexual predators, but they're still like floating around, you know, before I go to conventions, I always have to like hype myself up in my head in case I have to have like a difficult conversation with a convention organizer because I've been put on a panel with like some creep comic book creator or something, you know? And there's like the equivalent to that in like every office in the world, I imagine. And that is what you're getting here where it's like Zane who's come in and she's not had time to like process it. It's just, ugh, ugh. Good art though. <laughs> yep. It's it's great. And again, as we say, quite funny. Normally at the expense of the secondary characters or just like millennial life in London. I stuff. mean, she's very funny. Yes. Like her her mannerisms and also like her blocking, like the show is blocked very well. Yeah. Well, and she allows herself to be unlikable too, which gets yeah. back to my earlier point about like, this isn't designed to make you be like, man, I wish I could hang out with these people. Like, that's not the point. Morgan really had to like give me the hard sell in this show, even though it's like the, like, the most critically acclaimed show of the year. Because I was like, I just don't like to watch 
TV dramas about contemporary people. Like, I just don't. It's like my least favorite genre, right? And I was like, Gavia! Yeah. Yes, you have to watch it. Like, obviously, people are kind of comparing it to Fleabag and Girls, which are more comedic. And I also haven't watched either of those. But it's like one of the kind of hallmarks of this subgenre is like making sure that the characters are a bit unlikable. And in this, I was just like, wow, they're all annoying. Like, every person in this show is annoying. But unlike most things where I'd be like turned off by the characters being annoying, which is kind of the definition of that issue and is why so many like TV creators are like so keen to make characters likable. And this, I was like, they're annoying and I love them. Well, yeah. I mean, the Fleabag comparisons were very annoying to me. I get it because obviously they're like actresses and writers who are starring in their own things. But beyond that, there's basically nothing. They have no, they're creatively dissimilar in every other respect. They have nothing to do with each other, but like, Everyone was like, well, she better get the same attention that Fiona Bridge did. And I was like, yes, I agree. It's like, and she's very successful. So I think it's fine. Profiled <laughs> everywhere. And I mean, it just felt reductive to me to make the comparison too excessively, right? Because like, I loved Fleabag and I love this and they're just not that similar. I think it's much more like Girls and the um, HBO show Looking, which Jonathan Groff was in, which was about uh, gay men in San Francisco they're both half hour long. I think they share a lot sim- uh, visually with this. I mean, this is doing its own thing, but it has a similar it's kind of look. It's actually good. Yeah, I really liked looking. Okay. And both are kind of like funny, but like not like that funny, right? Girls was funnier than looking, but like they're dramedies, you know, and this is more on the drama side, but they have a similar kind of approach, I think, which made HBO, the, it so, so makes sense that the show is on HBO, right? Yeah. I was about to say, it's like the execs at HBO actually understand. It's weird as well, because it's just an objective fact that like everyone knows that HBO makes like good TV shows that people like to watch and are also smart and for adults, like that is their brand and it's a very successful brand. And I watch like so many shows on streaming services, which are by like respectable and talented creators and actors that are just like absolute dog shit. And it's like, Clearly something is happening with the executives at these various streaming services where they're like, I can only imagine discouraging creators from making shows that are actually smart and funny. Because most of the time, they're just like incredibly dreary and dark or like too slow. And it's like, why not just make a show that's like 28 minutes long and has jokes? Like, (laughs) how? (laughs) Yeah. I mean... HBO also makes some bad TV witness. uh, Obviously. You know, of course. But, um... They definitely, like, they just will allow people to do their thing, I think. Um, and I think the fact that the show aired weekly was a huge benefit. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely thinking about girls watching it. Obviously, girls is very different in certain ways, demographically, for instance. And the characters on that are all, like, actively odious. Like, they're incredibly annoying. But... Again, like, visually, it felt kind of similar to me. And the half-hour thing where, like, sometimes an episode will just, like, do another thing. And, like, you've got a bunch of episodes. So, like, why not just have one episode where it's doing this instead? I think it's really exciting. And I like that they are willing sometimes to have shows that will just do that. And I, to sort of close off, I guess, I remember when Lena Dunham got that show and everyone was like, a woman running a television show? And it was like insane which like obviously women had run tv shows before like Shonda i mean it was because she was so young it was the fact that she was so young and also that it was specifically about like the female experience in terms of like a i mean it was a very specific female experience but when i say that i mean like it was very body focused in a way that most tv isn't like there was a lot about like bodily functions and sex that was felt very novel at the time but it does feel exciting to watch this and be like oh we are in a different place culturally, even if there hasn't been as much progress as you might hope in the last 10 years, you know, like this is not as much of a like, oh my god, there's only one? (laughs) Yeah, I just, I just loved it. Um, I can't wait to see what she does next. I'm sure it will also be fantastic. So next week, we will be watching the film Quigley Down Under, which was requested by a lovely Patreon subscriber. I do not know anything about this movie. Great title, though. I've never heard of it either, but I love that we already know that it's about Quigley. Right. And Down Under. He's Down Under. So um, I guess Quigley is Tom Selleck, and uh, we're going to find out some more. Yeah. I'm excited to watch this, personally. I've not seen a Western in ages. 
Uh, Alan Rickman is the villain, according to this patron who sent this email. The villain? Oh, yeah. Huh. So we got a little bit of a diehard vibe going on, I guess. I mean, the title alone, just superb. Yeah, I'm here. This is like perfectly timed for such a heavy episode this week. I mean, this could also be a very serious Western, but I just feel like any movie that involves probably a horse and definitely Tom Selleck. It'll be great. Yeah. So that will be us next week. As ever, if you wish to force us to watch a film of your choosing, you could do that via our Patreon. I also uh, posted about some TV I've been watching recently on there. So if you want to read my negative thoughts about Perry Mason, a bad television show, and my positive thoughts about Lodge 49, a good television show, those are on our Patreon. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find my work on The Daily Dot. And I am on Twitter at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at Overinvested Pod. Our Tumblr is Overinvested Podcast. And our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.